turn in your copy of God's Word this morning to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, as we resume our study through the Gospel of Matthew. If you're unfamiliar, Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. About about three-fourths of the way through your copy of God's Word, you should find the, the Gospel of Matthew in the 18th chapter this morning. Before we study the Word, let's pray together. God, your Word is your Word. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and the training in righteousness that we might be complete and equipped for every good work. So we ask God in this moment, if you would use your word in our lives for your glory to equip us for what you've called us to do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Matthew 18 begins the fourth out of five of the discourses in the Gospel of Matthew. You, if you've been with us as we've studied through Matthew, you, you might remember that, that Matthew, as he puts his Gospel together, he kind of shapes it around five different sections of discourse between Jesus and the disciples, Jesus and those around him. The first one was the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7, through 7, was the first major chunk of discourse that you have. And then in chapter 10, you have what's known as the missions discourse. Then we moved into Matthew 13, and in Matthew 13, you find parables about the kingdom. Now we come into Matthew 18. It really runs Matthew 18 through 20, this major chunk of discourse between Jesus and and, and those around him, the disciples. It's prompted by a question from the disciples, but this section of discourse really answers the question, how do we live together as God's people? What, what does it look like to live as a part of the kingdom? How do we live with one another in the kingdom? What is it, uh, as one scholar said, what does it look like to live life in the messianic community? That's what this section talks about and how the question that, that Jesus answers and the, the question or the section is kind of kicked off by a question from the disciples. And it's a question that, that we really can relate to. It's a question that we perhaps ask ourselves at different times in life. And the question that they ask is, who is the greatest? Who's the greatest? Who will be the greatest? And really, that, that question is a question that's asked in, in every sphere and every age, right? Who's the guest of honor? I, I went to this past year, I, I went to a couple of events, a leadership banquet, and then I went to a, a, a gala up in Lexington for Right for Life. And, and in both of those situations, you have the, the keynote speaker, right? And he has his table or she has her table, whatever it may be in that context, sitting up front. And then you have tables out from there. They're typically the ones seated around them at their table, right? Or, or people who know them. They're kind of the, the most important. They're the, the greatest in that moment. Maybe they've donated the most money or maybe they're being recognized that night for some great accomplishment. And then out from there, you have tables that perhaps have given more or tables of more important people. And, and you kind of get a sense of how far away from the front you are, of, of what kind of, um, of, of prestige pay, perhaps you have, or how important you are in that context, or maybe just when you bought your table even, right? So, so we understand that. We, we understand this idea of who's the guest of honor, right? 
Who's the greatest in this context? Who's the, the person of the year? Who's the greatest musician, right? That's a, a good argument you can have over lunch. Who do you think is the greatest musician of all time? Who's the greatest guitarist of all times? Who's the most successful person that we know of? Who, who's the, the person who is the, the greatest leader? When you think of leaders throughout history, who's the greatest leader? Who's the greatest leader in our day? We, we ask these questions, don't we? So we, we get it. It makes sense when the disciples come to Jesus and they ask, Who's the greatest? And the reality is a lot of times, most often, that, that question is, is really coming out of a heart of pride, and in, in, in particular in their context, who's going to be the greatest? I, I want to be the greatest. I want to be the one that has the most important seat, right? You're, you're probably like me. You've been to those times where you sit down and you go, oh, wow, I'm sitting way back in the back of the room. I really wish I was up in the front of the room. I would love to be sitting at the table with that person. I would love to have a seat at the table. And that's what the disciples want to know. Can I have a seat at the table? Will I have the most prized position? We want to be there. But what we find out in this text as we start into Matthew 18 is that the call of Christ is different. He doesn't call us to seek out the most prized position. He doesn't call us to be concerned with who is going to be the greatest, who's going to have the most prestige, who's going to be the most important. The call of Christ is a call to humility. It's a call to humble ourselves. And we think of humility. Humility is not so much thinking less of yourself as though you're, you just kind of verbally or thoughtfully abuse yourself and pound yourself down. Humility is thinking more of the people around you. It's elevating those around you in your own mind. It's the opposite of arrogance, the opposite of pride. It's the willing subjection of yourself under the teaching of another, under one who might be authority and authority over you, or a teaching um, for us as the people of God. We show humility in subjecting ourselves humbly before the Word of God, right? We come before the Word of God and we understand that it is the authority over us and we subject ourselves willingly to that, we humble ourselves before the Lord. Viewing others more important than yourself really captures humility. In the Old Testament, particularly in Proverbs, we learn that the idea of humility and walking humbly before the Lord is, is a characteristic of godliness. It's a characteristic of the righteous. Proverbs 3.34, we read, Toward the scorners, the Lord is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. In Proverbs 11.2, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 18.12, before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. And then a passage that many of you are probably familiar with, Micah 6.8, what does the Lord require of you? Do you remember what it says? What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Humility, humbleness, is a characteristic of godliness, a characteristic of God's people. Well, let's read this morning our passage, Matthew 18, 1 through 6. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he 
put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. This morning, we're going to cover verses 1 through 4. Verses 5 through 6, depending on your translation, you'll see they handle it differently. In the ESV, it's its own paragraph, and in some of the others, it's connected in with verses 7 through 9. It kind of serves as a, maybe a, a connection between what Jesus says in verse, the first four verses and then 7 through 9 and continuing in the chapter. And so we'll really look at 5 and 6 next week when we look at the seriousness of sin, our responsibility that we have to those around us. This morning, we want to turn our attention to the first four verses, and we think about what he teaches in response to that question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who will it be? Who will it be? And how he responds. We'll look at four points here, just walk walk through each each verse, and the first thing we want to see in verse one is that the disciples ask the wrong question. They ask the wrong question. They're, They're concerned with pecking order. They're Concerned with importance, with prestige, with, with status. And that's what they're thinking about. And perhaps this is because they're still thinking about this political kingdom that they expect the Messiah to set up. Who's going to be the most important in that kingdom? They, they think along those lines. They're thinking about the kingdom, the Roman Empire. And in the Roman Empire, there is very much a pecking order of prestige and importance and authority. And so they're thinking perhaps that in those, those same lines of thought. Who's going to be the most important? Who will have the seat around the table? Who's going to be at your right hand, they asked in another spot. But this is the wrong question. And the question that they're thinking about is really coming from a, a statement of pride because we know from other spots in the New Testament, in the, in the Gospels, that they're, they're wanting to be at his right hand. They want to be in that place of honor. It's a, an operation of the heart of pride. Perhaps finding its root, maybe the, the first picture we see of this is in Babel. The Tower of Babel, the people attempt to build a great tower reaching to the skies, to the heavens. Why? To make a name for themselves, to declare themselves great. But God ruined that for them, thankfully, and scattered them. The disciples really, at this point, we see they've not grasped the true nature of the kingdom. Jesus has been teaching on the kingdom. He's been defining it, clarifying it for them. This is what the kingdom of heaven looks like. This is what it looks like to live in God's kingdom. And he begins, remember that first set of teaching, the Sermon on the Mount? He starts with the Beatitudes. You remember the Beatitudes? Where does he start? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven, he says. Blessed are the poor in spirit, but the disciples didn't get that. And we we covered that. We talked about blessed to be poor in spirit is to understand your weakness, to understand your poverty, your need for the Lord, that we don't bring anything to him. It's not as though we deserve salvation. It's not as though we have some standing before him that earns us or merits us our salvation. But we come with him or come to him impoverished and poor in spirit, in utter need of him. We come to him in humility. The disciples are concerned, well, who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to have the seat at the table? 
Maybe they failed to learn from the example. Pastor Ricky included this in his prayer this morning, the example of John the Baptist in 3.30 where, where they come to him and, and John resists the temptation to make his name great. And instead, what does he say? He must increase and I must decrease. John's example was that he was here to magnify the Lord, as are we. The problem comes in when we seek to magnify ourselves. The wrong question is being asked. And we have to kind of sense the irony here. Just consider with me for a moment the irony of the disciples asking this question. They're asking the eternally existent Son of God, who humbled himself by taking the form of a servant, who would have the most prestigious position in the kingdom? The the disciples come and they ask the king of kings, who humbly enters into Jerusalem riding on a donkey instead of a stallion, he enters in humbly on a donkey, who would receive the most recognition? The disciples come and they they ask the creator of all things who humbled himself by washing their feet. They want to know, well, who would be the one that everybody else serves? Who's going to be the greatest? They ask the author of life who humbles himself as a servant and gives his life as a ransom for many. Who's going to be the first in line? There's great irony here. They're asking the wrong question. And we know they're asking the wrong question because of how Jesus responds, how he answers. So we start with this wrong question in in verse 1. In verse 2, what does Jesus do? He sets before them the perfect example. So we had the wrong question, but then we have Jesus coming and setting before them the perfect example because their thinking, their perspective needed to change. It was not right. It was not correct. And so Jesus, being the the model teacher, the the fount of all wisdom, he comes and he provides the greatest example to correct their teaching or their thinking. And what is that example? It's a child. Now, presumably, presumably we would look at the text and and understand that it is a very small child. Jesus calls to him. He comes and he puts him in their midst. A person who in that time especially would not necessarily have a, a great position of authority. Even in our day, you're gathered around, you're, you're talking about something. Maybe you're having a, a theological debate or, or you're talking about some passage of Scripture or you're talking about something going on in our world, the, the issue with in, over in, in the Middle East and the, the battles and the wars and everything going on there. How often in the midst of that have you been gathered around and you said, hey, 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 hang on, let, let me get my nephew over here. He's only three. He'll have a great perspective. Probably never, right? None of us have done that. But in this moment, Jesus brings a child into the mix. Why? Because there's no better picture of true humility than a small child. A child that small, a child cannot win any battles. That child really has no worldly wisdom, hasn't lived through the trials of life, hasn't experienced the things that you would say, hey, I need some wisdom from you. Would you please give me some wisdom? They don't don't have anything that they offer to perhaps lead a corporation. They don't have their riches to alleviate poverty. They are of no political or social influence. You're not thinking, oh, I just want to sit at the table with this three-year-old because if I sit at that table, man, that's going to increase increase my influence and everybody's going to look and go, wow, Todd's sitting with that child. That's amazing. But yet Jesus brings 
this child in as an example. A child that possesses none of the traits, none of the qualities or the abilities of greatness that we often identify. Yet Jesus uses a child as an example. An example of humility. A child is needy and weak, aren't they? They know, well, perhaps sometimes they don't know, but they recognize typically they need help. In moments, they don't attempt to do something. They, they just come and say, hey, dad, will you do this? Hey, mom, will you do this? I can't reach that. They, they need help. They recognize that. The problem with us as adults, quite honestly, is as we grow older, we often slip into this kind of idea, this prideful idea that, that we know it all, we can do it all, we deserve it all. A child is not there. A child is happy to be in the room, loving life, weak, needy. I think this is why Scripture, if you think about it, Scripture never calls children to have adult-like faith, does it? It calls us adults to have childlike faith. Jesus never looks at a child and says, hmm, you need to be more adult-like in your faith. You know, you're just too humble and you're too trusting of me. I I wish you were more adult-like. Now, a distinction is made here, right? We are called to mature in our faith. We're we're called to, to grow in our faith. A distinction perhaps between having a humility of of disposition, a humility of attitude, but not a childishness of thought. So you have passages like 1 Corinthians 14, 20, where Paul calls us to be mature in our thinking. You have the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 6, 1, calling us to mature in our knowledge of doctrine, our knowledge of the the Word and the Lord. We have passages like where Peter in 1 Peter 2, 2, says that we are to grow up as believers So it's not an issue of saying, hey, you just need to remain childish. But when we think about faith, we are called to be humble as a child, to have childlike faith. We can look at this more when we get down to chapter 19, but we do need to understand that the example of faith is the example of a child, a faith that is humble, recognizing our weaknesses, recognizing our needs for Christ, for salvation recognizing that we can't do anything on our own, which is contrary, isn't it? It's contrary to everything else we have in life. Those of you who have applied maybe to graduate school or to medical school, you've filled out everything. What are you doing? You're selling yourself, right? You're, you're trying to promote yourself. You're trying to say, look at all I've done. Look at all I've accomplished. Here's my grades. Here's what I was involved in. Here's who I know. Here's who likes me. Here's what I've achieved. Here's my personality. You're selling yourself, right? To show how, essentially, you're trying to say, look how great I am. You want me in your program. Or maybe you've applied for a job. You fill out your resume. What are you doing? You're feeling how great you are, how wonderful you are, how equipped you are. I can totally do this. I'm sufficient. You bring me in. I'm going to knock it out of the park. Childlike faith isn't that. Childlike faith is standing before the Lord and saying, I have nothing. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. I have nothing to offer. And it's been noted, I don't remember who said it, but we bring nothing to the cross but our sins. We bring nothing to salvation but our need of it. That's all we bring. It's humble faith recognizing that we are in utter need of Christ's salvation. 
In verse 3, Jesus responds, he calls to him a child, he puts him in their midst of them, and then he says this, with a child standing in their midst, he says, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now we started where? We started in verse 1 saying they're asking the wrong question. Jesus answers their question, but does he answer it the way they expect? They say, who's the greatest? And Jesus says, you're asking the wrong question. You you need to back up. You need to not think about how great someone is and who's going to have the greatest place. You need to back up and be more concerned about whether or not you're even going to be in the kingdom. He, He essentially does... What Vince Lombardi, coach of the, the Packers, did years ago. The, you got these guys who are professional athletes. They've played football all their lives. They're getting paid to play football. There's no higher level they can go. And he walks into the locker room one day and he says, Gentlemen, this is a football. Right? To teach them the fundamentals. To bring them back to the basics. And saying, you can't run these plays, you can't win these games, you can't do this formation or figure out all these things. You can't win if you don't understand this. This is a football. We need to know what to do with it. And Jesus essentially says the same thing. They're saying, who's the greatest? What's it going to look like? Who's around the table? Who's at your right hand? Who's the most prestigious, most influential? No. You need to become like a child or you're not even going to be in the kingdom. You need to step back and think. Unless you turn and become like a child, you won't be there. It's a call to repent and to humbly trust the Lord. How many times do we get focused on peripheral questions, peripheral issues, and we overlook the most basic, foundational things around? We overlook our soul. Is it possible that you're so concerned with some particular aspect of life or even some particular aspect of theology or or something going on that you are neglecting the state of your soul? Is it possible that there's some sin in your life that you're so focused on, so entangled in, that the pride of the heart has crept in and you're neglecting your soul? You just assume something? You assume that you're there? And yet all the while, the answer, the reply from the Lord would be, unless you turn and become like a child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Is it possible? The question, there's a lot of questions you can ask. Even questions that are important. But you have to deal with this one first. Are you saved? Are you saved? You remember, you remember the account when the, the disciples came back and they came back to report from Jesus or to Jesus the success of their journey where they went out and they, they were casting out demons and the demons were submitting to them and, and great works were being done. They were rejoicing in that and, and they come back and they're celebrating that or they're rejoicing in that. Do you remember what Jesus tells them? Don't, don't rejoice in that so much. What you really need to rejoice is in the fact that your name is written in heaven, right? That's in Luke 10. Luke 10, the, the cause for rejoicing is actually not who's the greatest. It's not all the things you've done. The cause for rejoicing is whether or not you have been saved by the grace of God. Is your name written in heaven? 
The disciples were concerned with who would be first, who would be greatest. Jesus was concerned whether they'd be in the kingdom at all. That that word turn, he he says, unless you turn, some some version, I think the New American Standard says, unless you're converted, this idea of, of one's life completely turning around. And he says, unless you do that, you will never enter. And that's emphatic. You will never enter. Unless you turn, you will never enter. It's not just a matter of adding something on. It's not just a matter of saying the right things. Our manner of thinking, our lives have to change. We have to repent and come to Christ in faith or we will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is something Jesus has done all throughout Matthew. You might remember, those of you who have been with us, you might remember various times in the Gospel of Matthew where, where Jesus is clarifying and defining and, and teaching on what the kingdom of heaven is truly like, and he continues to reshape their understanding of salvation, what it looks like to be in the kingdom. He, he's continually teaching them what it looks like. And it's the same thing here. He, he's, he's helping us understand that the things that we commonly would think and say, this is what, it, what is required of salvation, or this is what it looks like to be saved, or this is what it's going to be like in the kingdom. Jesus is saying, this is not necessarily what you think. If, if you just think back, the times where Jesus says, listen, you will not enter the kingdom if this is the case. Just think back on a couple passages in Matthew 5, verse 20. He's in the Sermon on the Mount. He's teaching, and he, what he teaches there is that just checking off a list of religious traditions and doing this or doing that or not doing this, not doing that, doing the things like we've always done them as the Baptist church, that's not going to get you into the kingdom of heaven. If your sins are not covered by the righteousness of Christ, checking off religious traditions is not going to cover you. Right? It's, are you a child of God? Oh, a lot of people think that if I just check off these things, if I do these religious traditions, if I obey this, do this, do that, whatever it is, that'll be all right. Jesus says, no, it's not right. Or in Matthew 7, some people say that just saying, Lord, Lord, and and doing all these religious works and ministries, that's going to save you. Jesus says, there's going to be people who look to me and say, Lord, Lord, I'm going to look and say, I never knew you, and you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You may say, Lord, Lord, and you may spout off all kinds of theology, or you may say, look what I did. I I did this at the church. I went on this trip. I didn't do these things. But if you've never turned from your sins and trusted Christ in childlike faith, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Later in, in Matthew 19, He's going to teach us that that the riches of the world will often prevent people from entering the kingdom. But we we live in a day where where people often equate riches and success with the blessedness of salvation. But you can be rich and successful and wealthy and go to hell just as quick as someone who is an utter rebel. Wealth does not save you. It's not about how great you are here on earth. It's do you know Christ? Have you turned from your sins? Trusted him? Humility is a vital characteristic of saving faith. The faith of a child is a humble faith. It realizes your absolute need for Christ to do what you cannot. It realizes your absolute weakness 
before Him and your need for His grace in your life. The fourth thing we see in verse 4, you have a humble convert. He calls you to the humbleness, humble faith of a child to be converted, to turn to Him. Verse 3, in verse 4, we see the call of a humble citizenship, to live as a humble citizen in verse 4. It says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So he comes around to answer their question here. Initially, he, he dealt with what was most important. He says, wait, let, let's back up first before I answer. I'm going to help you see something. I want to put this child before you and say, listen, you need to not worry about who's the greatest until you resolve and understand or, or make, make right with your relationship with me. Are you coming? Are you turning and turning to me, turning from sin, turning to me with the faith of a child? And then in verse 4, he says, whoever, whoever, he gives it universal import here, anyone who humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He's defining what the kingdom looks like here. He's defining what living in the kingdom looks like. And it doesn't look like what's expected. It doesn't look like going into that gala event where all the tables are situated and there's that one table of the, the greatest, most, most influential and prestigious person. No, instead, it's all who humble themselves. All who humble themselves are great in the kingdom. It's a defining trait of the kingdom citizen. That's why Paul in Colossians 3.12 wrote, and he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. See, in God's kingdom, there's not just one person who rises to greatness due to his evangelistic accomplishments or due to his ministry influence or her writings or her, her ability to, to minister to others and care for others. There's not one person who, who rises because of his ability to preach or, or their theological prowess. No, it's the one who is humble. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom. All who show humility of mind are considered great in the kingdom of God. It's why we come across to Philippians 2. You, you might turn over there for just a moment. You're probably familiar with this passage. If you've been in the church very long, if you study Philippians, Philippians 2 verses 5 through 11 is known as the Christ hymn. It's an early hymn of the church, we think where, where they, they came and they, they sang this and declared this great theological truth of, of Christ and the incarnation, his coming, what happened there. Paul uses it as an example, as an illustration here. When he's writing to the church at Philippi, he's writing to them and he calls them to humility. And the, the precedent, the example of humility for Paul is Christ. So we pick up in Philippians 2, starting verse 3, Paul says this, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Christ 
is our Savior, our Lord. He is also our great example of what it looks like to live a life glorifying to God, honoring to Him, faithfully walking as a child of God. And Paul here uses him as an example for what it means to live in humility. And Paul is very clear. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In humility, count others more significant than yourself. Don't just look to your interest, but look to the interests of others. Have the same mindset as Jesus, he says. It's a call to walk in humility. It's what it looks like to live in the kingdom. And so the question at this point that I ask is, how do I do that? How do I cultivate a humble disposition? And here's, here's the reality. I think we all need to ask that question because all of us have pride dwelling within. We all struggle with pride. And if there's any of us in here who would say, I don't struggle with pride, then we're mistaken, myself included. We need to ask that question. How do I cultivate humility within? How do I grow in humbleness? How do I set my gaze upon the Lord, living in rejection of the pride that wages war in my own heart? How do I walk with Him? How do I submit to Him? How do I think more of those around me? How do I live as a humble citizen in the kingdom of heaven? Let me give you some points to think about. How do we cultivate a humble disposition? Here's the first way. Is one, we need to first recognize what we just said. Recognize that pride resides within us all. It resides within us all. In, in Mark 7, 20 to 23, it's a passage there, uh, Mark 7, 14 to 23, is an, an extended section where Jesus is answering and talking about this, this issue of what defiles a person. And he, he talks about that it's, it's the things in the heart that defile a person. Well, you know what he lists in there? We list the things that are within our hearts that defile us, that cause us to sin. One of those listed in there is pride. That pride is within us, and when it manifests ourself, it, or itself, it leads us into sin. We struggle with pride. We have sinful pride dwelling within us. We wrestle with it. And it leads us, it causes us to think more of ourselves than we ought. And so, I mean, one way to easily think about that is if you sit in here, I would say, if you sit in here and go, I don't struggle with pride. I don't think it's cliche. I don't think it's said too often to say, if you don't struggle, if you say you don't struggle with pride, you are prideful. You may need to examine your heart. See, pride leads us to elevate ourselves in our own minds while simultaneously lowering others. It leads us to ignore our own sins while magnifying the sins of others. It leads us to rarely practice confession and repentance because we're too proud. We don't think that we could ever have anything to confess or repent of. We're just continuing to live about our way. Although repentance and confession should be really a daily habit of the life of the believer as we realize that we are walking and we are wrestling with sin. And we don't do that because we lose our salvation every day and I've got, oh, I've got to confess and repent so I can regain my salvation. That's not it. It's one of those things where we have to come before the Lord and honestly say, God, I am wrestling 
with sin. I am struggling with sin. God, I am a prideful man. God, would you please forgive me for this? You need to come before him repenting, confessing that to him. So first we need to recognize that it is in us. Sinful pride dwells within us. The second thing is we need to recognize our own need and weakness then. That's the, that's the childlike faith, our, our own need and our own weakness. Childlike faith does not come boastful of all we bring. But instead, it, it comes weak and in need, knowing that Jesus Christ can do and has done what we cannot. And so we have to recognize that. We have to recognize that we need Him. So, so ask yourself some questions. Do you regularly come before the Lord proud of your status? Do you, do you bow before Him in prayer proud of accomplishments? Proud of what you know? Proud of scriptures you've memorized? Proud of your religiosity? Perhaps even proud of your sin? Do you recognize your own weakness and need for Christ? This is why Paul, Paul wrote in, in 1 Corinthians 1, 26, he, he wrote this, just listen to what he writes. He's writing to the church at Corinth. And he, he says, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, that the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Why does Paul write that? He, he writes it to remind them that if we gather and we're believers, it's not because of a prestigious position. It's not because of our wisdom, our intellect. It's not because of our noble birth. It's not because we met some worldly standard. It's because of the grace of God. We come before Him weak. We come before Him in need. And we must not forget that. When we forget that, and we start coming before him thinking about, hey God, listen, because I'm this. Because I've done this. Pride has invaded and is winning the day in our heart. The third way to cultivate a humble disposition is this, is to think more of Christ. Think more of Christ. Remind yourself of what he has done. Again, we have the example of, of Paul, right, in the New Testament. Paul not set upon himself, not, not thinking about all he's done, not saying, look at me, look at me. But in 1 Timothy, he writes to Timothy, he says what? I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Here's humility. Though formerly, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy 
but as I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So what does Paul do at that point? He's thinking about who he was. He thinks about the grace of God that comes upon him. That overflows in faith and love. And he bursts forth in his declaration and praising and magnifying the Lord. He says the saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul's thinking upon Christ. He's setting his mind upon Christ and what Christ had done fully aware of who he had been, of what he had done as a blasphemer, as a persecutor, as a religious zealot, but more fully aware of what Christ had done in his life. And so he praises him. It leads him to humility. Where do we see that? He came to save sinners. And Paul says, what? <laughs> of whom I'm the foremost. Oh, I needed him more than anyone. I think all of us might debate with Paul on that, if we're honest. The fourth thing is to think less of self. So think more of Christ, think less of self. Elevate him in our minds, praise him, consider him, meditate upon all he's done and who he is, and think less of yourself. So he wrote to the Roman church, Paul said in chapter 12, verse 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Don't think so much of yourself. Don't make every decision based on what you want, how to make you look, how it'll spin for you. Think less of yourself. Think more of others. See, humility, as I said earlier, it's not a call to self-depreciation, it's self-abuse. It's a call to think more of Christ, more of others, and less of yourself. The final way, piggybacking off of that, we think more of Jesus, think less of self, and then finally, think more than of others. Think more of others. That's what Paul called us to in Philippians 2. We already read it. Think not of your own interests, but the interests of those around you. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. What are the needs of people around you? How can you serve them? How can, how can you encourage those around you? How can you speak truth and life into their lives? Is that why we gather? Is that why we come? The author of Hebrews told us to not forsake assembling together with one another that we might spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Do you come into this place actively set and thinking about how you might spur other people on towards love and good deeds? 
Do, do we walk in and we walk through the foyer and think about how can I speak words of life, words of encouragement, words of exhortation into those around? What do they need? Perhaps that need is even a, a word of rebuke, a word of correction. How can we speak those things into their lives when they need them? We have to be aware and we have to be thinking of what do they need. If I'm only thinking about what do I want and what do I need, I'm not going to be aware of the needs of others around me. I have to think about them. Consciously walk in and function. How can I serve others? How can I serve? Not how can I be served, but how can I walk in to this place and serve those around me? What can I do to meet the needs of the people around me? Instead of sitting back and going, well, nobody's done this for me. And you want to kill a church. It's a really quick way to do it. Get grumpy and upset and pout about what somebody hasn't done for you. You want to grow, mature, strengthen, unify the body of Christ, serve one another. Serve one another. Walk in with a mindset of how can I serve those around me? What can I do to care for them? All of these are just simple ways to cultivate humility as a follower of Christ, as one who has been saved in the kingdom. Now, these do not earn your way into heaven. They do not merit salvation. Salvation only comes through childlike faith, humbly turning from your way of life, from sin, and trusting Jesus for salvation. I'm just going to leave you this morning with Jeremiah chapter 9. Think about humility, think about boasting, think about greatness. Jeremiah 9, verse 23 to 24, we hear this. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Is that your boast? Are you boasting in your wisdom, in your might, in your riches? Or are you boasting that you know Christ? I am his and he is mine. That is the first and the most important question and issue that you can deal with and answer this morning. Do you boast in the fact that you know Christ? Can you? If you don't know him, you can't boast in knowing him. Have you ever turned from your sin and trusted in him? That's the only way to know him. It's the only way. It's through placing your faith in Christ. How do you do that? It's simply by going before the Lord, bowing before Him, 
confessing the fact that you are a sinner. God, I am a sinner. I stand before you as one deserving punishment, and I am turning from that. I do not want to pursue and live in my sin any longer. I am turning from that. I am turning to you in faith. Lord Jesus, would you please save me? Would you save me? Would you be my Lord? Those of us who are believers, are we doing battle with the pride within? Or are we slipping into these ideas of, well, I'm a Christian, but look how wise of a Christian I am. Look how mighty I am. How much influence I have. May we just boast in the Lord. In humility of His great grace in our lives. May His redemption ever be the theme of our song. Let's pray. Father, we bow and... God, we bow as those who struggle with pride. Lord, I don't know that I've experienced any more greater evidence of indwelling sin in my life than this constant struggle and battle with pride. And so I confess before you, and I would say that Many, if not all of us, would join in unison in saying we confess to you, God, our pride. Our propensity, God, to just seek our own name being put forth, our own position, our own needs and wants and desires, abilities. And we confess that to you and we ask, God, that you would forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. God, teach us and help us to walk in humility before you. And God, we know full well that asking for humility can bring about some difficult days. But God, we desire and we long and we want to walk humbly before you, our God. God, I pray for friends in here today, God, who have never turned to you in humble, childlike faith. Perhaps they're religious, perhaps they play the part, perhaps they know the lingo. But God, when everything's peeled back, they've never just responded to you in childlike faith. Would you... God, do a great work in their lives. God, reveal their need and their weakness that they would respond in the faith of a child to you today. God, we commit our lives to you, to your glory. Use us, God, we pray, in the name of Christ. Amen.